Welcome to the Policy at McCombs podcast, a data-driven conversation on the economic issues of today. In this series, we invite guests into our studio to provide a highlight of their work presented during a visit to the University of Texas at Austin. Policy at McCombs is produced by the Center for Enterprise and Policy Analytics at the McCombs School of Business. I am your co-host, Carlos Carvalho, with my colleague, Mario Villarreal. Our guest today is Professor David Schmidt from the University of Arizona. David is in the philosophy department and is also the director of the Center for the Philosophy of Freedom. Welcome to Policy McCombs, Dave. Great to be here, Carlos. Thanks for having me. So today, Dave's joining us talking about his work on, on corruption. So I guess let's start with the basic question of what is corruption? Well, like any word in the English language, it can get complicated and tracking the different ways it's used can get complicated. But but going back several centuries, it emerged in the English language uh, as a way of talking about things going rotten. And now what we mean is is a particular kind of rottenness is is when a person has what we call a fiduciary responsibility, meaning a responsibility to act as someone else's agent, and and the person doesn't handle that responsibility to act as someone else's agent in a in a responsible way. Uh, then that's when we today start talking about corruption. So that sounds like a little bit more and more involved and more complex than just the idea of, of taking a bribe. I think a lot of a lot of folks these days we might think about corruption as the the quid pro quo, taking a bribe to do something illegal. But but it seems like the definition is a little broader than that. Uh, yeah, thanks for the thought. I I agree with that. I would say that uh, say taking a bribe might be the classic example of corruption, but it's not the definition of corruption. The, the definition of corruption is being entrust, entrusted with discretionary power for one purpose and then using it for a different purpose. So to say, my job is to issue this permit and you say, I need it today. And I say, oh, that's interesting. You need it today. Well, that'll cost you a hundred bucks. Otherwise, I'll get it to you in six weeks. Uh, and then there's no process for expediting it. It's just you've decided yourself that you're not going to expedite it unless you get paid under the table. So that then we would start talking about corruption because we would say your employer or the agency that employs you never intended for you to be collecting $100 to give out the license. You, you were paid a salary to do that. You're not supposed to be collecting fees for yourself. So we call that corrupt. Dave, a common thought is that at the center of these exchanges uh, is greed. That's what is driving the behavior. What do you think about that? Well, again, I guess I would say that you might say greed is the first example that we think of, but it's not the definition. Greed is the, uh, it's the classic, uh, classically corrupt motive, but it's not the only corrupt motive. So you could have people who are just uh, mean, right? And they say, well, I, I'm supposed to help you. You're here to fill out a form to get registered to vote. 
and I don't like you, I'm going to make it hard for you to get registered for a vote. And then you say, okay, I'll pay you 100 bucks. And you say, no, that's not got nothing to do with it. I'm not, I'm not greedy. I'm just mean. So that's a different kind of motivation that can be a kind of corruption where you say, your job is to make it easy for people to get these licenses or permits or something like that. And you've just decided to make it hard for certain people. So that, that, that kind of laziness might be another kind of corruption where you say, uh, I don't like your accent. I don't like your long explanations of why you've got a problem. I'm just going to shut my window now and stop listening to you because you're boring me. Now, that would be another instance uh, where you could start talking about, uh, about corruption. Uh, and just general ways of uh, general reasons to misrepresent your role or the agency's purpose or your job within the agency, I guess. But, um, but yeah, just, just uh, generally uh, having a fiduciary responsibility, a responsibility to provide a service, and then just deciding for reasons of your own to not be good at, to, at providing that service. So uh, there's a, a lot of attempts in economics to, to work on problems that we call typically principal agent problems, right? Yeah. Where, where yes. uh, we know that the agent might not act in the best interest, interest of the principal and, and we try to think about structures or institutions or incentives in place in order to, to stop that from happening and, and lining up the, the, their incentives. Um, we try sometimes to do that by fiat, by just saying, trying to say, for example, now you know, it was a big, big thing in the country of trying to make sure that every finan uh, financial advisor has a fiduciary duty with their, with their, with their clients, and 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 you know that creates <clears throat> uh, that expectation of a of a fiduciary responsibility, but it might be very hard to to enforce and have the proper incentive. So, in your in your view, when you're when you're thinking about this, uh, um, is it a matter of really trying hard to think about institutions to correct or goes beyond that, it's not enough, or we don't know it, it's too hard to try to solve that problem from the institutional framework. Yeah, thanks, Carlos. I would say yes and yes. It's, it's important to think th about this as centrally a, an institutional issue, and it's important to understand that it isn't only an institutional issue. So many theorists, people have worked on how to align incentives, how to, how to create a structure of rewards. So if you say, well, I'll tell you what, I will give you a, a commission for selling this product. And then you say, but it's important for you not to lie about the product. Like that's not going to work out well for us. So, so you've got to, you've got to play within the rules. Uh, but at some point you say, no, this is what we rewarded people for doing. And sure enough, this is what people are actually doing. Uh, so you might say, well, I'm paying uh, you to maximize the graduation rate in your unit. And so you say, well, that's why we canceled the exams and just gave everybody <laughs> A's. And so you say, uh, you know, actually, you're doing exactly what we gave you an incentive to do, but you're misunderstanding what the point was. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a corrupt uh, that's a very literal but corrupt reading of, of the incentives, the reward structure that we gave you. So, so if you're serious about, if you're serious, say, just generally, if you're serious about morality, you don't set up people's 
incentives and motivations in ways that are contrary to morality as best you can, but that's not easy. That's a huge achievement to set up the rules of an institution so that what it leads people to do is genuinely the right thing. So when I said that it isn't only an institutional issue, uh, there is a matter of what kind of culture you are building, not just an incentive structure. Well, what's your culture? What is your ethos? What are your principles? What do you stand for? What is your mission? And what can you do to get your agents to buy into your mission? So, so at some point, those agents, those people have to say, I'm going to do what's good for me and my family. I'm going to collect my commissions, my rewards and salary and so on. But there's also a matter of pride beyond the incentive structure. And so that's something that people have to teach each other and have to teach themselves. They have to say, uh, I, at the end of the day, I don't want to. I don't want to wake up and find out that really I've become a pawn of an incentive structure. Yes, maybe I own a Ferrari now or something like that, but I'm a cheap hood. Like, and there's no car in the world that can make up for the kind of person that I let myself become. Now, um, a thought here is: it seems that some societies have more corruption than others. Sure. So that speaks a little bit sure. to, to your narrative about institutions, but it also speaks to, it seems that we can have a sense of the magnitude of the problem. So it is a dual issue here. One is, uh, can it be measured? Uh, uh, can it be assessed? And if, and if so, how would you try to explain why some societies have more of it than others? Well, one thing I would say as a preliminary is you have to be careful what you measure. Um, Uh, because uh, measurements can be very misleading. The uh, measures that you create are never going to perfectly track the goals that you have in creating those measures. The kind of performance you're trying to uh, incentivize will, that's just something you kind of aim at with your, with your incentive structure. Now as to what would make the difference between uh, one society and another, Gee, that's a big, hard question which surely doesn't have only one answer. It's, uh, this is a complicated thing. Uh, but I guess I would say uh, a couple of things. Uh, one is you have, to, uh, you have to look at the, what it is that makes information available, the, what kind of information is available in your culture, in your society, in your organization. And so, you know, corruption, like rottenness happens in the dark. It doesn't happen in the bright light. So, so where, where people can operate with a sense of knowing what's going on, knowing who's doing what, knowing why they're doing it, and knowing that whatever you do is going to come to light someday. Not only what you did, but probably even why you did it to some extent. It's going to come to light someday. So you can have uh, feedback mechanisms and the, the feedback where you get information from other people and where other people can see what you're doing. And maybe you have a chance to explain uh, what you're doing 
uh, but that has that has a lot to do in general with how much corruption you're going to see. The amount of oversight and the information that the overseers have is is going to uh, make a difference. So there was a case once uh, where the National Science Foundation give gave some people a, a very large grant to run conferences, and they went and bought a yacht with the money. And, I'll attend that and, conference. Well, they, and they got caught, and they said, and there was a, there was a story, like in the New York Times was writing it up. They said, there's this yacht, like it's got like rose and cherry paneling, and it's got gold-plated doorknobs and that kind of thing, and gold-plated toilets, whatever it was, uh, something like that. And and these and the people who got the grant said, "Wow, this looks really bad." But if you just give us a second to explain, that's where we hold our conferences, and our conferences, like per person, like they're cheaper than having it at a downtown San Francisco convention center. And then we've got the asset, which is uh, which is appreciating in value. So they said. Uh, we're sorry. This we, we we see how bad this looks, and we uh, and we probably shouldn't have done it. But we were trying to do what we got the grant for. We were trying to hold conferences, and that's that's what we did. We have the best conference location, like out on the water, out in the bay, uh, that you could imagine. And and we thought that was a good thing, but we realized the optics are bad. So you, and and the National Science Foundation, they said. Okay, we hear you. We understand. We're still going to come down on you pretty hard. We're gonna. You're gonna have to return that money. Your institution is gonna have to return that money to us. But uh, but we're not saying you're going to burn in hell or anything like that. We we understand why you did it. Yeah, it was a mistake. It and yeah, the optics are horrible. And yeah, we can't afford optics like that. And yeah, you should have thought of that. So it's complicated, but like information just makes a huge difference, and the and the ability to have a certain equality, so that right, if you accuse someone of corruption and they say, "Oh, well, see what you don't understand is I'm upper class and you're lower class," that's the end of the conversation. You don't criticize me, and if you have a situation like that where people have autocratic power based on class or, or gender or whatever it is, that also is going to be something that is going to create space within which corruption can uh, happen. So I, I, that's an interesting thought that um, I never, um, there's a lot of information, there's a lot more information in the world right now. There's more ways for us yes. to access information than, than, than we used to. So from that perspective then is, is potentially a very good thing that by us being less in the dark, about lots and lots of different different institutions and behaviors, it might be a, a path forward to 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 live in a potentially less corrupt ways because people are going to be more aware of how bad they can look eventually, right? But um, uh, perhaps we need to learn how to deal with that more effectively still. Yeah, you have a you have a point. I mean, corruption is something that we read about on the front page every week, anyway. Uh, and maybe the encouraging thing is to say, well, it's news. It's not business as usual. And it's, um, so it may be that there are more stories than ever, but that doesn't mean it's more common than ever. It may be that it's bigger news now because it's less common than ever. Uh, another thing you can think about institutions is, is to say, well, if you've got a salaried employee who's supposed to be issuing licenses, 
and the salaried employer starts collecting fees, taking bribes under the table. That's corrupt. But you might say, well, what about before the time when there were no computers, there was barely even paper, there were no payrolls per se, if you worked for the king, you worked for the king as a as a volunteer, basically saying, "Hey, if you give me a give me a, a give me knighthood, and I'll just take care of this service for you." I and this is a real case. I will I will take care. I'll just take sacks of gold coins from you, and I will take care of handling the navy's uh, payroll. Uh, and I'll be doing that, of course, as a as a volunteer. Like there are no, there are not going to be any pay stubs. There are not going to be any W twos or anything like that. It's just a sack of coins, and me and the sailors. Okay, and then these people say, okay, I, there's no such thing as salaries. Salaries won't be invented for a couple of centuries. But I'm working for you now, dear sailor, and so uh, I've got your your pay and. If you want me to put you at the head of the line, then we're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to pay me a fee because I got to make a living too. Now, you might say, well, in a couple of centuries when the person's on a salary and there's not supposed to be any commission, that will be known as corruption. What about now? What about now when like nobody's on, nobody's getting a salary and everybody's working on a hundred percent commission? Now are commissions corrupt? And you say, well, it's what, every, it's what everybody is expecting. Everybody knows that that's how the system works, and everybody knows that that's the only way they have of making the system work at this point. And if you talk to the sailors and you said, should that person be collecting fees in order to give you your pay? And they would say, well, yeah, because otherwise I don't get paid. Otherwise, the guy just doesn't show up. So, yeah, of course I want the person to get paid. Uh, so you might say there are things that we do in effect to set the table for corruption as well. We have more information now, but maybe now we, uh, we expect people to ignore opportunities to collect extra fees or something like that, whereas there was a time when there were no extra fees because everything was the fee. Uh, so it's just it's just food for thought. Anyway, I don't know whether to forgive those people centuries ago who who made their living that way, and I I don't forgive the people now who who agree to take a certain salary for providing this service and then just decide they're going to give themselves a raise. I'm not sure if this is a follow up, but it certainly in my in my mind is. So I'm going to go for it. Uh, if you're you're citing uh, some sort of like convention, it's the way things were at the moment. And it seemed that it was a service was being provided. Maybe we're going to be suspect of it nowadays, but in the context of then, uh, it probably was uh, expected. Like, what if uh, uh, an exchange that is kind of suspect uh, on on those grounds or other grounds, Dave? What if it's legal? Like, think about something like uh, lobbying. is perfectly legal. Uh, there is a framework to do it. There is rules about the information needed in order to engage in that activity, that there are, that information is public, is out there. Um, yet some of us may think that there is something problematic with a lot of activities where firms or industries seek privilege and regulators grant those privileges. It may not be legal. I don't know if it's corruption, but certainly there is something to say there. What would you say? Hmm. Well, 
Obviously, uh, that's a really hard question, Mario, and it's, it's one of the hard questions of our time, uh, practically speaking. So what I said before, uh, when Carlos and I were talking about it, is, um, is I said you can't expect your institutional incentive structures to be perfect. You can't expect your legal structures to be perfect. Another way to put it is to say you can't be a good neighbor just by obeying the law. Uh, good neighbors have a kind of alertness and considerateness that goes beyond obeying the law. Uh, and all kinds of things are going to be legal that are irritating to your neighbors. And you wouldn't want to pass laws against every form of irritation. But what you need is neighbors to say, I just need to check. Like a I know I was playing music pretty loud. Did that disturb you? Was that was that a problem? Uh, if so, just tell me because I don't I don't need to play after ten o'clock. I don't need to have parties on Tuesday night. Just just tell me if it's a problem, and if you want to come over, just come over. Um, so that's how neighbors work things out. You do things beyond the rules. You do things beyond the uh, uh, legal requirements and incentive structures. You have to go the extra mile. So. Uh, what I would say uh, in addition about that, uh, I suppose, is, is that there are, there are cases uh, that really uh, make you have to think about, um, about how you're going to handle it. So in, in, the, in, the, in the lobbying case, you mean? In, uh, the, um... Well, yeah, thanks. Uh, so... Uh, in the lobbying case, I mean, there was a there was a person a few years ago who who got put in jail uh, for uh, various kinds of bribery and things that uh, that were involved in in this person's lobbying effort. And the person uh, went to jail and then was on television and said, "I I I was guilty. I absolutely I was convicted of a crime. I committed it." Uh, what I want to say is, and he says, I don't mean to be making excuses for myself, but I want to. What I want to say is, for some somehow, in, it's incredible to me now. I didn't see it at the time. I didn't get it. He said, I, I swear, I honestly thought I was one of the good guys. So I was collecting eighty million dollars in fees for brokering deals between uh, politicians and and uh, and and firms uh, and CEOs, that sort of thing. Uh, and and I gave 80% of, of that to charity, and I thought that that made me one of the good guys. I, and then later on when I realized, no, I actually personally, all by myself, did serious damage to the political culture of this country. He said, I, I can't believe it in retrospect, but I, at the time it, it was invisible to me. I honestly didn't see it. And he said, I do see it now, though. So that's uh, something to think about. It's, um, so this person was doing things. Many of the things that this person was doing were legal then. Some of them were retro ret retroactively made illegal, and he didn't complain about that. He said, nah, it, 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 was, it was criminal, even if the law hadn't exactly been interpreted that way yet, even if it was conventional to do what I was doing. He said... Uh, I don't want to say everybody did it. I was the biggest. I was the biggest criminal of the bunch at, in my heyday. I, I was the worst. But yeah, a lot of people were doing that, and the, and it was legal, and they they were, uh, and, and people knew that they were doing it. 
and so that's a that's a, that's another issue where you uh, where there's a personal responsibility for saying what's the law? I need to stay within the law, but wait a minute. That's that's not the key to being a good person. The key to being a good person is to say what should people what what would good people expect from each other? What would good people do here? Uh, what should the law be? Uh, and and we're uh, you know we're a long way. We've always been a long way, and maybe always will be a long way from being in a position to just create all the laws, pass all the laws that we imagine would be good things. The problem's always changing. And so the thing that it's going to take to solve it is going to be something that we don't see coming right now. So there's all kinds of, you know, cost to freedom of, of thought and freedom of expression, freedom of speech where you say, yeah, at some point we'll be paying a cost that we didn't imagine paying and we will be tempted to curtail and censor. And you say, yeah, it's, it's always pretty much been a mistake uh, maybe it always will be a mistake, but we don't we don't know what's around the corner. So you, you write about self awareness being a very important uh, aspect of this, like a person being aware of of trying to be a good person and be able to engage and try to find out or do the things that they are supposed to do, as opposed to just follow literally the letter of of the law, of the rule, of the incentive, and so on. Um, I think one of the most uh, disturbing examples uh, when I read it here is is that, is that the idea that. What happens when one loses the self-awareness? Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? What, what do you have in mind when you talk about that? Yeah, well, it uh, in fact uh, the birth of Western philosophy basically uh, goes back. I mean, the first huge text in the history of philosophy, uh, Western philosophy, was Plato's Republic, and that's what Plato's Republic was about Plato's Republic was about uh, uh, many things, but among them was the the idea of tyranny and the idea of uh, of of justice and political power not coming apart. Um, and so when he talked about uh, injustice, really he was talking about corruption, but it was about not about a, a city going rotten, but a, an individual soul going rotten. And he talked about the city as well, because in his words, the, the city was just a, a magnified case of the soul. And so by magnifying the soul in the form of the city, then uh, you, you get a closer look at what's going on. But, but he thought the fundamental corruption was letting the parts of yourself fall apart so that the... Um, so that your your character and your intellect and your set of physical skills and capacities say these are different aspects of your soul and if uh if you lose touch with yourself that's a form of going rotten that's a form of uh of having your soul fall apart and that's what rotten is is falling apart so when your soul falls apart you're corrupt and when your city falls apart and doesn't know what it's doing it has no purpose then your city is becoming corrupt and now i i think there are ways in which we should quarrel with that analogy and say cities and cities are not just big souls there uh, there's a sense in which the, the parts of a of the soul of a city they they really don't 
need to be on the same page and you don't want them to be on the same page. You don't want everybody to have a common mission. What you, what you want is for people to be like drivers in a well-organized traffic system where you say, uh, excuse me, sir, you have a red light and then the person stops. Uh, but what never happens is you, you roll up to the intersection and say, uh, which of you have lower class destinations and which of you have upper class destinations? Because the people with the better destinations get to go first. And the people with the uh, low class def- uh, destinations have to wait. That you never see a traffic management system managed that way. And in fact, that would be, if you tried to be that organized and that integrated and that self-knowing as a city, that would be really corrupt. I mean, that would be something where uh, you would be sorting the world into, uh, you know, winners and losers and upper class and lower class. And so it's, it's the genius of a, of a city to become that integrated, but no more integrated than that. Like, so everybody knows whose turn it is, but everybody knows also that your destination is your business. Uh, you just have to take your turn and wait when it's somebody else's turn. But your destination, that's up to you. you know, that, that's the essence of liberalism, is, uh, is not needing to dictate other people's destinations. David, but I, I sympathize with the notion that uh, there is something about corruption that rottens the soul. So there's something about the character of those that succumb or give up to the temptation of, of doing what is not correct, what is not right. But you also talked about institutions and rules and incentive structures. So I can imagine a perfectly decent human being that is not down into that spiral of rottenness of the soul, facing a choice where it's just too costly to do the right thing for various reasons. Uh, their life is at risk. There are... Uh, Many, many other other uh, possibilities. So sometimes good people act badly, and they act badly because the incentive structure induced them to do so. Is there a contradiction there, or actually those two things work together? Yeah, well, realistically, practically, that also is a, a really interesting question, Mario. So I guess I would put it this way, is... In times of desperation, people grasp at straws. That's, you know, people will do whatever they need to do to survive when they think uh, survival is the issue. So you can only expect so much of people when you, you don't give them a dignified way forward. So I would say that. Uh, the other thing I would try to do, say, uh, you know, when, when just explaining to people, explaining to young people the road ahead of them and what, uh, what it is they have to look out for, as I would say, be careful about exaggerating the stakes. When you're being bullied, you will say, I have to do whatever it takes to get through this. I have to go along to get along. And it's, we live in a pretty affluent society. You can be in the bottom 10% of the income I have been, and, and it's not that bad. It's not, uh, it's, it's got your attention, and there are things that you have to do. Uh, there, are, there are plans that you have to make and budgets that you have to observe. 
and it's and it's tricky and sometimes dangerous but when you exaggerate the stakes then you're on the road to making excuses for behavior that you yourself don't condone and so i would i think it's very important to uh to teach people to teach oneself to be realistic about what the risks actually are here and what the costs actually are here because we we're emotionally geared to view ourselves as in a, in in an emergency like we have to do what's we have to keep this job because if we don't keep this job then we become outsiders we're not part of the tribe anymore and that means we're going to be food for somebody else we're not going to be protected by the tribe uh and that that feeling makes us capitulate to corrupt bosses and become part of corrupt schemes and and so very often i would want to say to people it's just a job uh and i admire people who say I'm done here. It's just a job. It's not worth my soul. It's not worth my pride. It's not worth not being able to look my kids in the eye. It's not worth having to explain to them why I'm on parole. And by the way, my boss never got caught. He arranged for me to be the one who was taking the risk. Uh so don't exaggerate the stakes. I think that's an important life lesson. Our guest today has been Dave Dave Schmidt from the University of Arizona. Dave, thanks for joining us at Policy Macombs. Uh I have really enjoyed my time here. Thanks so much for having me. Before we wrap up, you can get more information in our Medium page. Thanks for listening to Policy Macombs. See you next time.